You're listening to the Enhance Your Practice podcast series, brought to you by ASPS University. I'm ASPS University Chair, Dr. Nicholas Panetta, and I invite you to check out all of our educational offerings, from professional surgical videos, courses on practice management, and much, much more at ASPS EdNet. Hello, listener. Welcome to the ASPS University podcast, Enhance Your Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Ash Patel. This episode is about measuring the return on investment of new technologies in your office, and we're going to focus on portable ultrasound technology. We're lucky to be joined today by Dr. John Lindsay. Dr. Lindsay's in solo private practice in New Orleans. He's been there since 1994, uh, and he currently also serves as a clinical associate professor of surgery at Tulane University. So thank you, John, for joining us and, and taking some time out of your busy schedule. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm curious, John, you've put together some other educational material about ultrasound use in plastic surgery, which I'm hoping we'll be able to also talk about. But how did you first get interested in using ultrasound technology? So it's a little bit of an unusual story. I, I do body contouring a fair amount, and uh, my complication rate with thigh lifts was just unacceptable. Probably half of my patients had some sort of wound problem. So uh, we were looking at maybe some different techniques of doing thigh lifts, and LSU uh, Department of Anatomy was involved in that. We were actually doing some whole mount histologic sections of the inferior pubic ramus and the surrounding fascial planes, which would include Collie's fascia. And the anatomist who was so gracious to help us out on this study was complaining at a research meeting one day and said, why are you making me do these whole mount histologic sections looking at fascial planes when all you need to do is just look at it with the ultrasound? We have one in the freshman anatomy cadaver lab. And you know why can't we just image the fascial planes as opposed to making me do all this histology. And it's just one of those moments. I'd never thought about ultrasound, certainly had never used it. This, I'd say, maybe five or six years ago. And so we did. And uh, we started using the ultrasound. It was like, wow, you can see the fascial planes with this ultrasound incredibly clearly. We were able to demonstrate that there is variability in the integrity of Kali's fascia. Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak. You can see it, you can't, which correlated with the histologic specimens. And there's just a variability there. And so we were looking at whether or not our wounds fell apart when Kali's fascia was kind of diminutive. And so that was the start of my experience with ultrasound and plastic surgery. I get the idea, as I've learned about this technology, that its use is really helpful to to improve patient safety, to improve outcomes, and try and improve patient satisfaction. So as we kind of think about how you're using ultrasound, portable ultrasound technology in your practice today, can you tell us a little bit about exactly what you use it for and, and what some of your colleagues may also be using it for? So two really big applications in my practice. The one is regional anesthetic blocks. And obviously, that's to improve patient experience, patient comfort. We can talk about the precipitous decrease in use of uh, opioids. Uh, So that's a big one. Uh, We use those regional blocks liberally, but not universally. And I'm happy to talk to you about about our experience with that. Probably the second most utilized function of, of portable ultrasound in my practice has been perforator flap mapping. We do a fair amount of microsurgery variety of different flaps and 
the advantages from both the patient and the doctor perspective are pretty important as far as precisely identifying anatomy before you commit uh, to any one particular type of uh, flap reconstruction. So uh, I have not yet adopted uh, implant monitoring. However, I'm a student of that. I'm interested and I probably will incorporate that as well. So like most plastic surgeons, I think we're, we're not familiar with the use of ultrasounds and certainly hadn't used them in, in training. So when we think about this technology, can you explain to me what portable ultrasound technology really means? And if I was looking for a system, what I should look for? My definition of portable is that you can put it in your pocket or worst case scenario in your briefcase. So the portable technologies house all the ultrasound technology in a probe that you can fit in the palm of your hand. Uh, probes are maybe the size of a cigarette box, some a little larger, some a little smaller. And then you connect that uh, either with a cord or wirelessly uh, through Wi-Fi uh, to your Android tablet or even your smartphone. And so the technology has just been so miniaturized, it's easily portable, no matter how you look at it. So it, it, it is far lighter, far more portable than what you may have seen in your surgery center or hospital, these cart-based ultrasounds, which, although technically portable, because they're in a cow, you can kind of push them around, but they're still, you know, cumbersome, they're hard to get to, you, you know, it's not readily accessible to your average plastic surgeon. So those are what I would call portable. So are there specific things within the technology if we were trying to decide between systems we should look for? Yes. It, it depends your, on your application. If you are into microsurgery, you want to look at the higher frequencies for portable ultrasound that we just described. The highest available frequencies right now are 15 megahertz, but Clarius just came out with a 20, and we can talk a little bit more about that. So if you're imaging perforators uh, in real time, you, you should definitely have a system which has a capacity to work in the 15 megahertz range or thereabouts. Uh, if you're not using it for microsurgery applications, then uh, you're looking at fascial planes, then, then the lower megahertz, anywhere from 5 to 10, would be perfectly adequate. Are there any systems that you'd recommend? You, you mentioned one a second ago. Sure. So I have had the good opportunity to compare some of the different portable systems. Take Butterfly, for example, very affordable. And again, it fits in the palm of your hand. It is really good for imaging fascial planes. So if your main goal is to provide regional anesthetic blocks for your patients, this is available for purchase for around a little over $2,000, so it's very good. We actually have one in our surgery center. If you're looking on the high end of the megahertz, the Clarius device at 20 megahertz gives incredibly crisp images of perforators as they course through subcutaneous tissues. The problem is that as the megahertz frequency goes up, the depth of penetration goes down, and that's the limiting factor is that with the Clarius 20, I was not able to visualize more than one centimeter depth, which is almost a disqualifier. So in the middle, Philips has a, a Lumify platform that gives a range of 2 to 12 megahertz, which 
allows not only visualization of the fascial planes very nicely, but it gives you a good look at perforators as well, although it can be a little bit fuzzy, but they're still good. Uh, so th those are some of the more available and affordable portable devices that we've had experience with here. So, you know, one of my thoughts when, when you mentioned about how portable this technology is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that allows you to be able to use this in any of the rooms that you have in your office and surgery center. You, you can easily take that in, in and out and you don't have to have it dedicated to one particular room. Is that correct? Absolutely. This is easier to move around than your laptop computer. In terms of, we think about return on investment, I always think about, well, first we need to know what the investment is. So there's obviously a cost for the technology, but how about for training, any other equipment that might be needed? No, there are a number of resources available to the practitioner that if you take advantage of them, the New York School of Anesthesia has a number of excellent lectures available. Of course, you have to purchase them. Anesthesia textbooks on regional anesthesia are certainly going to be available through your medical school libraries. So if you have a mentor friend who's an anesthesiologist, and I don't know where I practice, they don't really want to do a lot of this, especially in cash pay cosmetic environment, and you do your own tutoring, I think that you can learn how to do these fairly straightforward techniques without having to go to a school or have special fellowship training. I think this is well within the reach of your average plastic surgeon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, there's there's differences when we're talking about the cash pay, um, you know, aesthetic patients. But if we were talking about patients, when you're mentioning perforator mapping uh, for perforator flaps, is there, are there codes for these procedures that might be billable for the ultrasound portion? Yes, and you, you should take advantage of that. I mean, the rules are that. You need to create your own document and upload your images uh, to support your documentation for whatever you're you know, planning on doing. But the codes are there. They're featured in the university course. And actually, if you just do one or two, let's say, perforator mapping patients in a month's time, you're going to more than cover either the rental cost of your equipment or the outright purchase cost of the equipment. For the listeners, John, you mentioned the, the university course. That's the ASPS university course that's coming out soon called Ultrasound in Plastic Surgery. You're one of the faculty for that course. Can you tell us a little bit more about that course? So this is going to be a deep dive into three aspects of ultrasound and plastic surgery. The first is going to be the regional anesthetic blocks, which are particularly adapted for general use in plastic surgery, particularly body contouring. The second is going to be, I guess, a little bit more specialized, but not for the microsurgeons, in using this technology to map your flaps your perforator flaps before you actually make your choice. And there's a lot to be learned with that. And the last one, of course, potentially the biggest is offering our patients imaging of their silicone implants. I mean, I think I'll just go ahead and say it now. I think the big elephant in the room is that, you know, we advise our patients, yes, you should follow the FDA guidelines and every two years have your MRI done. Oh, by the way, you have to pay for this, and it costs down here in the New Orleans area probably seven fifty to a thousand, depending on which imaging center you go to. So, you know, we're we're going to go into those three areas uh, predominantly. There are other applications of ultrasound and plastic surgery which are important as well, but we're going to start with those.
Plastic Surgery Connect is how ASPS connects plastic surgery consumers with high-quality procedure information and qualified ASPS member surgeons. More than 10 million people visit PlasticSurgery.org every year, and that number is growing. ASPS member surgeons can use a Plastic Surgery Connect premium profile to be featured on PlasticSurgery.org with more than just a name and phone number. Greet patients with a welcome video, show off your before and after photos, advertise practice specials, and add SEO-friendly links back to your own website. Providing visitors with a more complete picture of your practice works. Premium profiles receive on average five times the consultation requests over a standard listing. Learn more and sign up plasticsurgery.org forward slash connect. As you mentioned, the implant imaging is very interesting. I mean, I think for a number of reasons to detect if there's any fluid around an implant, to detect if there's any implant failure. What I find particularly interesting about it is that if you were to offer this in your practice, then that's a reason for the patients to come back to you every couple of years to be evaluated and potentially for you to discuss uh, other procedures, other things that the patients may be interested in. Um, do you agree with that or do you think there's any other benefits? Well, first of all, it's is patient benefit because I, I can tell you that you know, I feel as though I have a very compliant patient clientele. I do. And we ask them to come back. We do see them long-term. But I would bet that our actual compliance with our recommendation to do MRI imaging is actually very low. So as you said, I think this definitely is a, I guess, a, a patient benefit. Yes, have them come back, offer them imaging, certainly better than nothing, probably very good. And this void of this follow-up that we should be doing with our patients regarding silicone implants will hopefully be filled, perhaps, with, with this portable imaging technology. How would you explain what your return on investment is for, for your portable ultrasound capability? Okay, I mean, I'm going to say up front, uh, this is not a big moneymaker. You know, th this is for patient benefit, but there are different ways of, I guess, measuring return of investment. And as I said previously, if you just did one or two perforator mapping studies and build for them in a month, that's going to meet the cost of this new technology. And that's really not asking very much. Where I really think you get your return on your investment is let's take regional anesthetic blocks. We have experienced a much higher level of patient satisfaction. How do I measure that? Decreased number of phone calls, the actual refills that we have to give on our opioid medications plummeted by um, over two thirds. Now I'm not making this up. We're actually publishing this data. Uh, we uh, retrospectively looked at uh, over 400 patients before regional blocks and after, and looked at actually what happened to our opioid prescribing. So patients, less constipation, less phone calls, less nausea. They're not calling you on the weekend, fewer refills, better patient satisfaction. They actually feel better and they do better. So that is sort of an intangible measurement on return, but I think it's almost invaluable. The practice just flows more easily. Actually, when we first seriously going into uh, the regional blocks, the biggest pushback I had was my own office staff. They said, Dr. Lindsay, you are going to be the guy out there that these people are going to say, don't go to this guy because he doesn't give out pain medicine. <laughs> They're not going to come to you. It did not happen that way. I had more pushback from my office staff, who've obviously been here for a long time, saying, don't do this because you're going to get a reputation out there. So we did it. 
And uh, it's been a very positive thing. Um, and actually to quantitate that across all of these different body contouring procedures, the average number of opioid pills that are consumed per patient per procedure is down to three, three five milligram tablets of oxycodone. And we're talking about tummy tucks, breast implants, submuscular prostheses, pretty much what a general plastic surgeon would be doing in the community. You can really ratchet down uh, the amount of opioid that you're prescribing and still maintaining uh, just as good, if not a higher patient satisfaction. That's that's one sort of return on investment. The other one I'm going to just say, which are, you know, it's a little embarrassing to talk about this next one, okay? As microsurgeons, we're very ashamed to admit, look, we tried this flap and it just didn't work, you know? Okay, why didn't it work? Well, you know, sometimes they just don't work. If you can truly identify and pinpoint your targeted perforator, identify its size, the flow characteristics, the thickness of your flap, and you can pinpoint it and identify that preoperatively, your chance of mismanaging that patient or having a failure for whatever reason is just going to go down. I mean, we've all had those days. You hate to admit it. I mean, we, the skin paddle on the ALT wasn't quite right. The, the perforator was diminutive. It just you know, wasn't there that day. It should have been. You know, I thought my CTA reading was really good, but you know, I was a little bit off. And anyhow, those bad days go down and your good days of, wow, that was a really an easy, straightforward, we lifted the skin, it was there, you did it, done, go up. So I will say that I think that probably the patient underreported morbidity of some of these perforator flaps is going to go down uh, if the surgeon takes the extra time to identify patient-specific anatomy. We've certainly experienced that here, and I, I think it's something that plastic surgeons should maybe take a look at. Those are fantastic points. You know, I, and I certainly think that uh, as a profession in medicine, we've we've really got to do what we can to to reduce unnecessary opioid use. So that's, I mean, really remarkable, the, the numbers that you mentioned there. You've obviously changed your practice as a result of this, but can you tell us a, l- a little bit more detail about exactly what you do then for your breast surgery patients and how you, how the ultrasound works and maybe a little bit more about your abdominoplasty patients? Well, I guess I'll take the second one first. Uh, for the abdominoplasty patients, I would say the vast majority of them are having muscle plication, which you know, increases the level of pain uh, for the patient. So for abdominoplasty patients, we no longer make it optional if they're going to have a regional block. Uh, that's part of the package. Uh, we do the regional blocks routinely. We are only giving a total of 10 5 milligram tablets of oxycodone for these procedures. Uh, the rest of this is going to be Tylenol-based and either Celebrex or ibuprofen-based postoperative management. So what what's that has done is that uh, not only has our opioid prescriptions precipitously dropped, but we're just not having to give out nausea medication. We used to routinely do it uh, because patients were taking a lot of Percocet and Vicodin. They all had to have uh, anti-nausea medication. They all were constipated. Uh, so we don't have to prophylactically give uh, muscle relaxants because the regional blocks, the tap blocks specifically for tummy tucks really decrease the spasm. So uh, the cyclobenzaprine, Flexeril, Robaxin, uh, those prescriptions went away. Uh, rarely give those out anymore. 
the Finnegan, Zofran prescriptions, we almost don't need to give them out anymore because patients are just not using opioids as much. Uh, so that would be a little bit about how we are dealing with abdominoplasty uh, with the regional blocks. Again, I think it's a very nice patient benefit. And you also mentioned breast surgery. So the regional blocks are, are really not as useful for low pain procedures such as a breast reduction mastopexy lumpectomy. Uh, we don't recommend the uh, PEC-1, uh, which, by the way, has no dermatomal distribution anyway, uh, or the serratus anterior plane blocks for these low-pain uh, procedures. However, for the procedures where you're doing submuscular prosthesis, which is still very common in aesthetic uh, breast augmentation or uh, the occasional submuscular tissue expander, those patients do benefit very nicely from uh, regional blocks of the uh, chest area. So that, that's sort of how we're approaching very generally uh, our average breast surgery or abdominoplasty patient with regional blocks. What kind of local anesthetic are you using? Liposomal bupivacaine or are you using something else? We are, um, and, and we are going to publish on this. So we're using, and this is on label uh, with the FDA, uh, as of about two years ago, you can mix uh, bupivacaine with the uh, liposomal bupivacaine as long as the milligram dosage of the liposomal bupivacaine exceeds the milligram dosage of bupivacaine by more than two to one. So you really have to watch it when you're mixing these anesthetics. Uh, so that's what we're using. And we are diluting that to a total of 100 cc's. We're using 20 cc's per ultrasound guided uh, injection. Uh, we save 20 cc's for the skin, which is what the Experol or liposomal bipivacaine was originally designed for, soft tissue infiltration. So we always save a little bit for that. Uh, so that is, that's our current uh, go-to uh, anesthetic uh, solution. Uh, so, John, do you have any other uh, wisdom comments about the use of uh, portable ultrasound that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I, I just want to go back and say, I, I think for the regional blocks, I wouldn't go off and just try to do this on your own. It, it's always good to do these in concert with experts. So I think your anesthesia colleagues are going to be more than happy uh, to participate uh, in your uh, assuming these uh, skills and techniques. So I would uh, form an alliance there. Uh, also, you just need to do the appropriate study. I think a good starting point is, is the ASPS University course. At least it'll whet your appetite, kind of see where you're going, what it should look like when you're actually doing it, but actually have some people who really know what they're doing uh, to mentor you as you uh, go along this little journey of learning some uh, new technologies. Now, the perforated flat mapping is something which is uh, pretty self-evident. You just have to get the probe out and figure it out and get the settings right. And by the way, we go through all that in the course as to how to set that up, set your all your parameters so that you can best image your, your perforators is, is there. There's no risk to that, by the way. There's actually upside. We didn't talk about the upside of this. Uh, you know, you are spending some time with your patients when you're doing reconstructive surgery if you're figuring out the type of flap. And, I, you know, our experience is that the patients have really appreciated that. This doctor is actually taking time to figure out my specific situation to make sure that things uh, go as well as they can. 
So, you know, it, I think a little bit of an improvement of the doctor-patient relationship is is always a good thing. So th- those would be some additional comments I'd make. Dr. John Lindsay, thank you for joining us today, sharing your experience in the use of portable ultrasound. It's been really interesting. And, and also thank you for participating in the uh, ASPS University course, uh, Ultrasound in Plastic Surgery. Oh, thank you, Dr. Patel. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again. Join us on the next episode of Enhance Your Practice as I talk with Dr. Jordan Fry, creator of the Prudent Plastic Surgeon blog about the journey to financial well-being. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our Enhance Your Practice podcast series brought to you by ASPS University and our host, Dr. Ash Patel. You can listen to our other episodes on any of the podcast platforms where they are currently available or you can download recordings directly from ASPS Ednet. New seasons and episodes are coming soon on practice management. Please contact ASPS Education with your feedback and suggestions for future podcast topics. Thank you for tuning in.